two films, one theme. This is Words and Movies. Merci beaucoup, Rebecca, and welcome to yet another episode of Words and Movies. I'm your co-host, Claude Call. And I'm your other co-host, Sean Gallagher. And today we are wrapping up our series on You Can Like Both. And so we're going to uh, the year 1998, excuse me, to talk about World War II, of course. As you now, do. <laughs> yes. Now, for many reasons, which we won't get into because this episode's going to be long enough, World War II has had more movies made about it since the invention of movies than any other war, both fictional movies and documentary movies. And when I talk about war movies, of course, I am not just talking about combat movies, although today the two movies we'll be talking about are combat movies. And while there was a lessening off of World War II movies in the 80s, because the Vietnam War was the hot subject back then for war movies, in the 90s, thanks to the fact that we were having so many anniversaries about World War II, 50th year anniversaries, I should say, as a subject, World War II made a comeback uh, in Hollywood and around the rest of the world as well. And in 1998, there were two major combat movies set during World War II, which we're going to be discussing today, which are Saving Private Ryan, directed by Steven Spielberg, and The Thin Red Line, written and directed by Terrence Malick. Both movies are set against major battles during World War II. Saving Private Ryan starts out during D-Day, the invasion of Normandy by the Allies on June 6, 1944, while the first half or so of The Thin Red Line is set during the Battle of Guadalcanal. A uh, major battle in the war in the Pacific in August of 1942. In addition to that, both of these movies are epic in length. Saving Private Ryan is two hours and 49 minutes long, while The Thin Red Line runs two hours and 50 minutes long. And both movies involve not only physical journeys, but also spiritual or psychological ones. Other than that, though, the two movies uh, come from and use very different approaches, but that's okay because, once again, you can like both. And we got a lot to cover here, so let's get right to it. And Claude's going to give us the plot description for Saving Private Ryan. And strap in, because it's a lengthy one. But we start in the present day. We're at the Normandy American Cemetery and Memorial that's uh, located up on the English Channel in the north of France. And an elderly man, played by Harrison Young, is approaching the cemetery, and he starts to walk among the rows of gravestones. He's accompanied by his wife, his uh, daughter and her husband, and three teenagers teenage granddaughters who all follow at a distance. He searches the crosses and he stops at a specific one where he falls to his knees crying. His family walks up behind him and tries to comfort him, and the camera slowly zooms in on his face, stopping at an extreme close-up of his eyes. From there, we move into a flashback. 
And now it is D-Day, June 6, 1944, and squadrons of soldiers are getting ready to storm Omaha Beach. Uh, on the waters of the English Channel, American Ranger soldiers are headed to Omaha in these landing vehicles, and the captain of one unit, John Miller, played by Tom Hanks, tells his men to uh, clear the murder holes and check their rifles for sand and water when they exit the boats. And we see Miller's right hand shaking as though he's nervous. Now, the moment the landing ramp at the front of the boat opens, a number of men are immediately shot down by machine gun fire coming from uh, concrete bunkers that the Germans have set up and some uh, machine gun nests that are built up into the cliffs overlooking the beach. So to avoid the machine gun fire, some men are jumping over the sides of the boats and into the surf. Some of those men are drowning under the weight of their gear. Others are getting hit by enemy fire underwater. And upon getting to the beach, while many are taking refuge behind the wooden landing craft obstacles and the thin flanks of the steel tank obstacles that are blocking approaches to the beach, but these are offering almost no protection from incoming fire and mortar rounds. It's just chaos everywhere. As Miller crawls up the sand, a mortar shell hits nearby and the blast temporarily stuns him. It knocks his helmets off and well, just the one helmet and muddles his hearing. He watches as men around him are hit by bullets or mortar rounds or just too scared to move. One private Mil uh, looks Miller in the eye and asks him what to do. And Miller's hearing slowly starts to return and he orders his sergeant, Mike Horvath, played by Tom Sizemore here, to move his men up the beach and out of the line of enemy fire. As Miller staggers up the beach, he drags a wounded man. That man is hit by a mortar blast and killed, and it takes Miller a few moments to realize he's been dragging less than half of the man's dismembered remains around. The German barrage kills most of the army troops and leaves twice as many wounded. Dis many of the wounded are eviscerated or missing limbs, and they're just bleeding out on the beach despite the efforts of medics to treat them. Whomever is left in Miller's platoon assembles at a sandbar that provides very little cover from the German bombardment. Miller orders his men to use Bangalore explosives to clear out the barbed wire and the mines behind the sandbar so that they can advance. The men make it to a concrete bunker, but now a machine gun nest on a cliff nearby is keeping them from moving any further. After sending a few of his men into the fire zone where they're just cut down immediately, Miller has his sniper, Private Daniel Jackson, played by Barry Pepper, run into the fire zone and then take out the men in the machine gun nest with two precise shots. Jackson is successful and Miller moves his men behind the bunker where a soldier with a flamethrower just sets the whole thing ablaze. On the beach, one soldier yells to the others to let the German soldiers burn to death as they jump out of the bunker. Miller's men are engaging other German soldiers in the trenches behind the bunker they're quickly creating an exit route for, from Omaha for the rest of the battalion. Miller also watches as a few men execute some sur uh, surrendering German and Czechoslovakian soldiers. Pirate Adrian Caparzo, played by Vin Diesel, is fine. he finds a Hitler youth knife, which he gives to his Jewish friend, Private Stanley Mellish, played by Adam Goldberg. Mellish just breaks down crying. Horvath collects a handful of dirt in a small metal can marked France and puts it into his backpack alongside cans marked Italy and Africa. Horvath comments to Miller that the beach commands quite a view, but that view is the bodies of thousands of dead and wounded American soldiers, many of them lying in the surf, which is literally turned red with their blood. We close in slowly on one of those bodies, and on his backpack we see the name 
S. Ryan. At the War Department in the United States, dozens of secretaries are typing form letter death notices to be sent to the families of the men killed in various battles around the world. In a scene almost entirely devoid of dialogue, one of the women typing discovers three letters for three men from the same family. The fourth and youngest son of Mrs. Ryan, James Francis, is part of the 101st Airborne Division. He was dropped into Normandy ahead of the beach invasion, and his whereabouts are currently unknown. The letters are brought to the attention of General George Marshall, played by Harve Presnell, who, after reading a poignant letter sent by Abraham Lincoln to a family under similar circumstances during the war, orders his officers to find James and have him brought home immediately. Back in Normandy, it's a few days after D-Day, Miller meets with his command officer and reports on a difficult mission that cost the lives of many of his men. His uh, commander is Lieutenant Colonel Anderson, played by Dennis Farina, and he gives him new orders. Miller is tasked with taking a squad into Normandy to find Private James Francis Ryan and bring him back. Miller gathers what men he can and finds Corporal Timothy E. Upham, played by Jeremy Davies, in the camp press box to accompany the squad as a translator to replace his previous interpreter. The squad sets out in the French countryside. Richard Ryben played by Edward Burns. He's a hot-headed private from Brooklyn. He questions the mission, wants to know if the effort to find Ryan is worth the lives of the men who should be fighting more important battles to liberate France and Europe. Miller himself is also skeptical about the mission, but understands that his current orders are more important and encourages his squad to discuss the mission. The squad arrives in a small French village where the army units are currently at a standstill with the German forces they're fighting. Miller asks the nearest sergeant if Ryan is among his unit, but is not. Uh, In an attempt to get in information from the army unit on the other side of town, they send a runner across the battlefield. Unfortunately, that guy's cut down almost immediately. So they cross the town through some side roads and they come across a French family trying to escape their bombed out home, but they get trapped in the crossfire. The father is insisting that the squad take his young daughter to safety. Miller refuses, but Caparzo steps out from cover to take her against orders. He's shot in the chest by a sniper and he falls, still alive but caught in the open. The squad takes cover. They're unable to pull him to safety. Jackson quickly identifies the town's bell tower as the sniper's likely shooting position. He finds a nearby pile of rubble and he uses it for cover to take out the sniper. So as the sniper looks for another target among the squad, he sees Jackson just a moment too late and gets shot right through his own scope. Caparzo dies having bled out. Miller looks down on his body and harshly tells his men that this is why they follow orders and this is why they don't take children. Wade retrieves a bloodstained letter from the body of Caparzo that uh, he had been writing to his father. In another part of the village, the squad and the other soldiers sit down inside a bombed building to rest. A sergeant sends one of his men to find their CO. When the sergeant sits down, he knocks over a weakened brick wall that reveals a squad of German soldiers inside the building. And a standoff issues with, uh, ensues with both sides aiming weapons at each other and both demanding that the other put down their guns. The impasse is unexpectedly ended when the Germans are cut down by machine gun fire from the unit's captain and the soldier sent to find him. Miller asks the captain, played by Pre- uh, Ted Danson, if he has a Private James F. Ryan in his unit. The captain confirms that he does, and Ryan is brought to Miller, who tells him his brothers are dead. This Private Ryan, played by Nathan Fillion, breaks down and asks how they died, and Miller tells him they were killed in combat. Ryan looks confused, and he tells Miller his brothers are still in grade school. Miller confirms the man's full names and learns that he is James Frederick Ryan from Minnesota. Miller, exasperated, tells Ryan he's sure his brothers are just fine. Another private being treated for a leg wound, who is also from the 101st uh, squad, learns that the uh, Airborne's rallying point is nearby and that Ryan may have gone there. 
The squad spends a few hours resting in a church. Wade rewrites the bloodstained letter that Caparzo wanted to send to his father. Horvath and Miller talk about how many men Miller has lost under his command. Miller accepts that men die in combat for the greater good. Colonel Upham talks to the captain about a betting pool that the men have going on where they try to guess what Miller's occupation was before the war began. Upham and Miller come to a humorous but silent agreement when the pool is big enough, Miller will tell him the answer. The squad arrives at the rally point near a wrecked troop glider. The rally point is filled with dozens of wounded GIs, and sitting among the men is the pilot of the glider who tells him he didn't know where to find Private Ryan. Apparently, the glider went down after being towed because steel plates had been welded to its underside to protect the general he was transporting, making the glider too heavy to fly. The glider crashed, killing the general. The squad reflects for a moment on this futile effort to protect a single man. The pilot gives Miller a bag full of dog tags taken from dead soldiers. Miller has his men go through them looking for Ryan. Uh, they conclude that Ryan isn't among them and in a minor fit of desperation begins to question the passing soldiers, asking if any of them know Ryan. But he does get lucky with one man who is from Ryan's unit, but he's lost his hearing from a grenade blast, so he has to shout his answers. The man says that Ryan was assigned to a mixed unit that's guarding a bridge across the Merdere River in the nearby village of Ramel. Miller determines that the bridge is of vital importance to the army and the Germans because it will allow either side to drive their tank units across the water. So the squad sets out again. They spot two dead GIs in a field, and they confirm that none of them are Ryan. Miller and Horvath spot a machine gun nest near a partially destroyed radar dish. Now, while it would be both easier and safer to keep their distance from the machine gun and move quietly around it, Miller resolves to take out the Germans' position so that the next Allied unit will not be surprised and killed. The squad is opposed to the plan, but Miller won't relent and he gives them their assignments. Upham is instructed to stay behind with the gear, and when the skirmish is over, the men yell frantically for Upham to bring their gear. When Upham reaches them, he sees that Wade has been shot several times and is rapidly bleeding to death. The men frantically try to save his life, but Wade does die, saying he wants to go home. One of the Germans is captured alive, and in retribution, the squad starts beating on him. Miller's unde he's undecided about how to dispose of this German POW, and he orders that he dig graves for Wade and the two GIs that they saw in the field. When Upham protests that prisoners are not to be treated like slaves, Miller orders Upham to go help the German. As the German digs the graves, Miller sets off to one side where he cries, his right hand shaking again. He slowly recovers his composure, and he returns to the squad. Now, they want to kill the remaining German, everybody except Upham, that is. The German begs for his life, insisting he loves America. The men are still prepared to kill him when Miller finally intervenes. He blindfolds the German and let the man walk off, directing Upham to tell him to surrender to the next Allied unit. Ryben, is, in particular, is offended by Miller's compassion and threatens to desert, saying their mission has gotten two of their comrades killed. Horvath authors Ryben to fall into formation and threatens to shoot him. The entire squad begins to argue, and Miller suddenly asks Upham the total of the pool on him. Miller reveals that he's an English composition teacher in a small town in Pennsylvania. The men immediately stop arguing. Miller says the war has changed him, and he's not sure if his wife will recognize him and if he'll be able to resume his former life when he returns home. By his math, if finding and bringing Ryan back ensures that he'll be able to get home sooner, then it's his job to complete the mission. The squad finishes burying Wade and the other GIs together. The squad approaches Ramel. While crossing a field, they spot a German half-track. Uh, Miller orders everyone to take cover while the vehicle passes, but the half-track is suddenly hit by bazooka fire. 
The squad is momentarily confused because they don't know who's firing, but they move in and kill Germans while they try to, who are trying to escape the destroyed vehicle. A small group of American soldiers emerge from their positions in the field and identify themselves as paratroopers from various airborne units, and one of them turns out to be Private James Francis Ryan, as played by Matt Damon. In the ruins of the village of Ramel, Miller's squad learns that Ryan and his comrades are guarding one of two remaining bridges across the Merdere River. Their commanding officer had been killed a few days before. Miller tells Ryan that his three brothers are dead and that he's been given a ticket home. Ryan, of course, is devastated, but he refuses to leave, saying it's his duty to stay with his unit and defend the bridge until relief arrives. Ryan says his mother would understand his desire to remain at the bridge with the only brothers he has left. Miller can't change Ryan's mind. Miller and Horvath reflect on Ryan's refusal, and they decide to stay and help the unit defend the bridge. The half-track they destroyed was part of a German probe to investigate the forces guarding the bridge so the unit knows the Germans will mount a large assault. Miller inventories their few remaining weapons and supplies and outlines a plan to lure the German tanks out to the main street of Rommel, where the rubble from destroyed buildings has basically created a little bit of a bottleneck. It'll channel the armor and the troops into this spot and allow their unit to flank the Germans. Their plan includes Rybin riding out on a German half-track motorcycle to lure the German unit into the bottleneck. Miller suggests that they improvise sticky bombs. Uh, those are socks that are stuffed with Composition B explosives and coated with grease. They'll use the sticky bombs to blast the treads off one of the tanks and turn it into a roadblock. Upham is given the job of running ammunition to the two Browning machine gun positions that are manned by Mellish and 101st uh, paratrooper Parker, played by Dmitry Gortsas. Uh, Jackson and Parker take position in the church power to provide sniper cover and for Parker to stand as a lookout reporting on the German approach. The men wait for the Germans to arrive. Ryan tells Miller that he can remember his brothers, but he can't see their faces. So Miller suggests that he think of a context, something of all done together. Miller tells Ryan when he wants to remember his wife, he thinks of her trimming the rose bushes. Ryan tells a story about his brothers, but when Ryan asks Miller to tell him about the, his wife and the rose bushes, Miller politely refuses, saying that memory is for him alone. The squad feels the ground beginning to rumble, and that means the German column is arriving. Jackson signals from the church tower that there are four tanks and about 50 troops altogether. Miller orders everyone to their positions, and Rybin lures the Germans into town. One of the Tiger tanks proceeds down the main street, and one of the soldiers attempts to plant the sticky bomb on the tank, but he waits too long and the bomb blows up, killing him instead. The German troops following the tank are cut down by the soldiers and by mines planted along the sides. Two men plant the Comp B bombs on the wheels of the Tiger, blasting its tread apart and bringing it to a halt. When they advance on the tank to take out its crew, they're fired upon by a small German squad and several men are killed. Ryan and Miller's squads open fire and they shift positions several times during the battle. Although they've taken the Germans by surprise, several of the men are still killed. Jackson is discovered in his perch and he is hit by tank fire. Mellish and Corporal Henderson, played by Maximilian Martini, uh, man a 30 caliber machine gun to cut off any flanking action by the Germans. Uh, Henderson is killed and then Mellish is attacked by a German soldier who overpowers him in hand-to-hand -hand combat, slowly driving a bayonet into Mellish's chest. Immediately outside the room on the stairs, Corporal Upham is frozen with panic and he's unable to move to rescue Mellish. The German leaves, ignoring Upham. Rybin is able to flank the German gun and takes out its operators. Sergeant Horvath is wounded during this time when he and another soldier corner each other. 
They are each uh, chuck helmets at each other and then shoot each other with their pistols. The German soldier here is killed and Horvath is injured. He grabs up him and retreats when Miller orders everyone to cross the bridge to their Alamo position where they're going to make their last stand. The surviving 60-ton German tank follows. It's unstoppable despite Horvath shooting several bazooka rockets at it. Horvath is finally shot in the chest as he pulls back and he dies a few minutes later. Miller prepares to draw, destroy the bridge when a shell from the uh, tank hits the building behind him and blows the detonator out of his hands. He staggers the cross to the bridge to retrieve it and he's shot in the chest by, as it turns out, the same German soldier he had set free at the radar station. Upham witnesses the sh shooting while hiding behind a pile of rubble. Miller falls down, but he manages to pull himself into a sitting position, and he draws his forty-five pistol and begins to shoot vainly at the Tiger tank, which has begun to cross the bridge. After a few shots, the tank suddenly explodes. It, it turns out that a small squadron of fighters have bombed the tank and several enemy targets. Rybin and Ryan rush to Miller's side and call for a medic. Upham, still on the other side of the bridge, is undetected by the enemy squad. He reveals himself and takes the entire squad prisoner. The man who shot Miller recognizes Upham and calls him by name. After a moment's hesitation, Upham fires his weapon for the first time, killing the man. The soldier's body falls to the ground, and Upham tells the other ones, disperse. As Miller lies dying, Ryan tells him that the fighter planes they just saw are tank busters. Miller calls them angels on our shoulders. He beckons Ryan closer, and with his dying breath, he tells him, earn this, earn it. In a voiceover, we hear General George Marshall's voice reading a letter to Ryan's mother, informing her that her son is returning home. He quotes a passage from Lincoln's letter about the cost of the war. Ryan stands looking at Miller's body, and the camera focuses on Ryan's young face as it morphs into present-day Ryan. That's the elderly man we saw in the first few minutes of the film, and now we see that he is standing at Captain Miller's grave. He tells Miller that he hopes he's lived up to Miller's wish, and been worthy of all that Miller and his men did for him. He asks his wife to tell him that he's led a good life and that he's a good man, which she does. The elder Ryan then salutes Miller's grave, and we dissolve to an American flag backloaded by the afternoon sun flapping in the breeze. Okay. So... And, and I sound choked up, but really my voice is giving out. And it is, it is, a, it is a choke up moment, really, for the film. <laughs> well... I'll talk about that a little later, but first, let me just say that while this is not officially an adaptation, Spielberg and screenwriter Robert Rodat relied heavily on books written by Stephen E. Ambrose, who has written a lot of books about World War II, including one called D-Day, and this is... This story is loosely inspired by the story of the Nyland family. The Nyland family were four brothers who went off to war to fight in World War II and were shipped to separate locations to avoid the fate of the Sullivan brothers, another family of um, brothers who fought in World War II, who were all killed in the same place. There was a movie made about them called The Fighting Sullivans, by the way, which I have not seen. But at any rate... At the time of the war, three of them were killed, or two of them were killed for sure. One of them was thought killed. 
who I'm going to get to in just a bit. And when the War Department found out about this, just like in the movie, they decided that they were going to get that fourth brother out of there, although there was no long mission as there was in this movie. And then it turned out that one of the brothers who was presumed dead, who was in the Pacific, was actually alive in a POW camp in Burma. And then, so he got to go home as well once the war was over. But in any case, what Spielberg and Rodat were doing were, was, excuse me, trying to tell this story of, you know, realizing that Contrary to what they say in uh, Star Trek all the time, that the needs of the one, in this case, Mrs. Ryan, outweigh the needs of the many. And whatever you think of that philosophy, you know, of leave no man behind, no matter what it takes, with a couple of exceptions, which I'm going to get to, I think that Spielberg, Rodat, and everyone involved pull this movie off brilliantly. Yeah, they, they do, in fact. I mean, this is, this is some very effective stuff. It, there's, there, it's, been, it's been cited for its realism. Uh, every battle that we get into, we are just thrown into chaos. We have no idea what's going on. You know, the, uh, early in the film, they do bring up the Sullivan brothers. So, you know, I, I guess it's a little bit of lampshading. So as not to say, well, this is just, you know, a different version of the thing. But, but basically that the mission to get Ryan was inspired by what happened with the Sullivans. Um, but, but I think, I think it overall, it, it winds up very, very effective. I, you, this is one of those films where you get a lot of, of set tight pieces, but the things that connect the scenes together have a very nice flow to them. So you, you can't like, like there are some films that, that are like a bunch of these things kind of strung together and you can easily kind of jump in and out of the film and not worry too much about what happened that you didn't see. But everything in this one just kind of carries you very neatly to the very next one so that it's one of these things like, well, I'm just going to sit and watch the scene. And the next thing you know, two hours have gone by and the movie's nearly over. It's kind of cool in that respect. Right. Now let's talk about that realism mm-hmm. for a moment. This, of course, was not the first movie to be set during D-Day. Well, this only starts out in D-Day, of course. Uh, The most famous movie about D-Day up to this point was the 1962 movie, The Longest Day, which had an all-star cast, including John Wayne and Robert Mitchum and many others. And yet, it's not a film that I find to be very good, Uh, Partly because, as one critic put it, it feels like it was directed by committee. (laughs) But it also presents what seems to be a sanitized view of war. Even though by that time, World War II movies, particularly combat movies, were starting to go beyond what was actually shown in war movies that were being made during World War II, which 
with some exceptions, were mostly there for propaganda purposes. But, you know, after World War II, you started seeing movies like, say, Battleground and the story of G.I. Joe that were determined to be a little more realistic. And Here's Longest Day, you know, acting like this was a movie being made during World War II. And Spielberg was, although making a movie in tribute to his father, who had fought in World War II, and the people like him, was set out to make something that was not going to be like The Longest Day. Let's just put it that way. For starters, uh, there is quite a bit of handheld camera work during the battle sequence at D-Day on Omaha Beach. And Spielberg and cinematographer Janice Kraminski, who, of course, was is still his regular cinematography, also played around with the color filters in that first battle sequence to make things look more bleached out and realistic. Matter of fact, when this gets shown on TV now, if it's shown on basic TV and not cable TV, which assumes that viewers are more discerning, there's a disclaimer put in front of the movie saying that the look of the early battle sequences are intentional and um, not as a result of uh, bad uh, technical issues. And it's not just that, but of course, this is, was, I should say, by far the most graphic presentation of a battle on film. Uh, at least as far as a modern war goes up to that point, so much so that when Ambrose attended a screening of the movie, he requested that they pause the movie after the first 20 minutes because he was so overcome by what he was seeing. And it's not just that the violence graphic, although I should stress it is not gratuitous at all. Right. It's also the fact that this doesn't follow the script of Hollywood movies in that, you know, people who are trying to redeem themselves get killed or people get killed because they're bad or anything like that. Anything can happen here. Anyone gets killed for no good reason at all other than the fact that this is a war and people die. And you've got scenes like the person uh, or the soldier getting shot at and the helmet uh, blocks a bullet and he takes off his helmet in relief and then he gets shot and killed to show that things happen at random. And the only dialogue in these scenes is purely functional which doesn't always work in a movie, but in this case it does because no one has time to wax poetic or whatever. And the way Spielberg is and Kaminsky are able to capture the confusion of that moment 
is very telling and credit should also go to the editorial department and the uh, main editor here was uh, Michael Kahn, who does a great job, I think, along with everyone who assisted him in helping Spielberg and Kaminsky capture the confusion of what's going on during D-Day. Yeah, he does. And, and you know, what, uh, to come back to that warning, I can actually remember when that aired, like, for the first time on, on broadcast television, and you got that little warning up front, and it actually reminded me of... When we were little kids, I don't know if you quite remember this, but but um, when The Wizard of Oz would run on NBC on a regular basis and NBC was still doing the peacock before the shows to tell us that the show was in living color and the announcer changed the, the that bit a little bit slightly. It was like, you know, this is brought to you in living color, but the beginning of the movie is in black and white. <laughs> and, and it was this. I, I just kind of flashed back on that. When, when I first saw that. But yeah, as far as, far as the, the editing work by Michael Kahn and, and, and you know, just, just the, the, like I said, the, the chaos that is, that is conveyed here, you, you, you don't know what's happening just as much as they don't know what's happening. And he still manages to bring you a story as far as getting off the boats and getting into the water and onto the beach and working their way up. You know, it still manages to happen in the middle of all this noise and and light and sound and 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 confusion and people running around and just blood everywhere and spattering the lens from time to time and and you know occasional cutaways to people who are just lying on the beach with their their insides on the outside and 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 you still i mean and and you're 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 definitely struck by this as as you know what a what a terrible thing this this was and at the same time so necessary but it's it's almost like a relief when you get to the end and now you just got like a couple of Czech soldiers just getting like single bullets put through them just because you're, you're like, thank God that's over and, and we can move on into whatever happens next. It's it's kind of a, a crazy feeling that, that you react that way to the film. I actually do not remember that Wizard of Oz uh, mm-hmm. thing. Probably, and I probably didn't pay attention to it because... I, we're both of the generation where um, it was still possible for a family to own a black and white TV, and my family did. So probably the first time I saw Wizard of Oz was on my parents' black and white TV. But be that as it may, getting back to the subject at hand, another way that Spielberg strove to put more realism in this movie than in any other World War II movie to that point was by having all the actors go through boot camp. Now, most, I'm going to get to the one who didn't in a moment. Now, this was not the first movie to do that, of course. Oliver Stone, in his movie Platoon, wanted his actors to go through boot camp to capture what he thought was the realism that had been left out of most Vietnam War movies uh, up to that point. And as a matter of fact, he had the same technical advisor that Spielberg used oh. Um, for his war movie, and that's Dale Dye, who appears in Saving Private 
Private Ryan as well as one of the officers telling General Marshall that they shouldn't send out a platoon after Ryan. And uh, by the way, uh, another officer in that room, although he doesn't get any lines in the movie, but you notice him because he's got one arm, is played by a, before he was famous, Brian Cranston. Mm -hmm. But anyway, um, as you mentioned, uh, well, before I get to that, um, the only actor who actually enjoyed the experience of the boot camp that Die uh, put the other actors through was Hanks, because he knew this is what he would sign up for. And as grueling as this might have been, it was only a fraction of what real soldiers had to uh, go through during wartime, of course. And, you know, it now, actually paid off, too, because you, I am so convinced that Tom Hanks is one of those guys who has been there and done that, and he just he knows what has to be done. And, and so he really falls into, like, a, a, a command-type position. You buy it immediately. Right, and that's why, even though, you know... At this point in his career, Hanks was being the Jimmy Stewart type yeah. and uh, playing good guy roles. It is quite a shock um, about two thirds of the way through the movie that you find out that Captain Miller is, in fact, a school teacher because Hanks has convinced you so much of being this hardened. Uh, captain and Harnan veteran that you don't believe the fact that he's a school teacher. But as you alluded to, and I promised I was going to get to, there was one actor who did not go through any of these boot camp experiences, and that was Matt Damon. And that was done intentionally by Spielberg, um, who is not known... Well, I take that back. Sometimes he does indulge in method directing, but usually towards more benign purposes. For example, he encouraged the children actors in E.T., the extraterrestrial, in their bond with the E.T. creature to make things more believable. Uh, here... He kept Damon from going through the basic training that the other actors did because it made their resentment mm -hmm. of Ryan all the more believable. And it comes off on screen, especially in the case of Ryben, uh, Ed Burns' character. And I have to say that I, up to this point, was not overly impressed with Burns as an actor, nor, by the way, as a filmmaker, because he was a director at this point, having written and directed a couple movies at this time. But I do think that Burns does really sell the initial loathing and irritation that Ryben has with Ryan. And then right before everyone is about to make their last stand, he just gives Ryan this look as if to say, yeah, you're all right now. And I think that's done effectively as well. 
Yeah, it is. I don't think that there is anybody in here that I don't really buy in their in their position. Every everybody was just so well cast and, and takes it and, and, and takes it to exactly the right place. You know, even some of the ancillary characters. And I'm thinking about like the scene with um with with Nathan Fillion and and not so much him, but what happens is word gets out that they're looking for Private Ryan. And they they call Private Ryan and they want to get him front and center, as they say. And as Ryan starts to come in, one of the people in his unit says something bad about him. And then we find out like, okay, he's he's told that his brothers are dead and he finds out that that's not the case. And he's still upset. He's like, he wants to talk to his brothers. He needs to go home. He's got to find out that they're okay. And the and the guy who actually said something about him, you just see a look cross his face. Like he's kind of changed his mind a little bit and they didn't, it wasn't, it wasn't like a big deal was made about it, which I liked. It was a nice subtle kind of moment, but it was one of these things where you could see, and we've talked about this a million times, like just this one guy doing a tiny little thing that conveyed an awful lot. And, and I just appreciated seeing that sort of thing. Uh, there, there was also, the other thing was about the letter that Caparzo had been writing. So Wade gets it, Miller gets it, and then Ryben picks it up at the end. So, and it's, and it's one of these kind of unspoken kind of things that this letter is important and it needs to be conveyed from one to the next to the next until it finally reaches its destination. I, I just love those tiny little moments that these characters go through. I do agree with that. Now, I'm going to get back to Hanks' performance in just a moment because I want to highlight a couple other things about them, about him. But there are two other performers that I want to single out here in particular. Uh, the first one is Barry Pepper, who I was not too familiar with before seeing him in this movie, although we've discussed him earlier in our series before when we talked about Enemy of the State. Mm -hmm. And here he's playing a stock character. You know, he's a Southern guy who quotes the Bible a lot, seeing himself as the Lord's instrument. And yet he doesn't play him as a cliché. Even the accent he uses isn't too overdone. So it's a very good performance. And then, then of course, he's also convincing as a sharpshooter. You know, the technical um, training that he had to go through obviously paid off because he does look very convincing holding the gun and firing it every time. Not just and that, then, but just as he adjusts it too. There was one point where you see him like working the scope and talking about the crosswind and that just kind of muttering to himself as he puts it together. It's like, okay, this guy knows what he's doing. Right. And then there's Jeremy Davis's Uffum. Now, Davis sometimes will uh, come off as mannered in his performances, uh, but in a movie like, say, Solaris, where he's playing a guy who has been driven crazy by what he's seeing, and in something like this, where he's the naive newcomer to everything, uh, it fits the character. And one thing about his character that is that goes against the grain of most World War II movies up to that point is in 
a stereotypical war movie set during World War II or made during World War II especially, his character would have become toughened up so that when Mellish is getting in that fight with the German soldier, that he would have come in and saved the day and shot him and proved his manhood. But instead, Spielberg and Rodat show something more realistic that up from this being his first big combat experience is still frozen by fear. And when he kills the German soldier at the end, it's partly, of course, for revenge, but it's also out of frustration about the fact that he didn't step up when it counted. And he's angry at the Germans and he's angry at himself. And the way Davis captures all of that on his face is pretty telling. Yeah, he's, he's really good. And I, I, I've seen him in a bunch of other stuff since then. I mean, I, I, he was in like an episode of The Rookie last year. And, um, and, uh, and then he also did a couple of years on the, on, the, on the show Lost. And that was a case of a character who had kind of an internal thing going on that he couldn't always convey to the other, to the other characters. And and I've always liked the work that he has that he has done, and and again this is this is like one of those one of those guys where you know you've 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 got something going on. You can see he does evolve a little bit as as far as some of the action that he takes, but he is still that naive guy and who who um who who doesn't always know exactly what he is supposed to do unless he is specifically told to do it. So there are times when he knows what he's got to do and he goes and gets it done. But other times when he's just like, what happens now? And, and yeah, I like the fact that he doesn't really evolve other than that, uh, throughout the, the course of the film. And I think we also have to remember, you know, this is a lot of stuff happening in this movie. And at the same time, it takes place over six days. And that's it, because if you look at this, if you look at the tombstone on on Miller's Miller tombstone at the end of the film, you'll see this was June 12th when he died. So from June 6th to June 12th, that's it. Yeah, no, I agree with that. And we're not even mentioning the joke that he's part of in the movie as well. Uh, we can't tell you what FUBAR stands for right. on the air, but I like the fact that he never actually figures it out uh, that Mellish really has to be the one to explain it to him. Mm-hmm. And then when he explains it to him, he finally gets it. Now, before I get to Hanks, I should mention as well, uh, Ted Danson, up to this point... Um, had been in quite a number of movies that were disappointments or flops um, after Cheers ended, and his cause was not helped. Um, I think it was at a roast uh, where he showed up in blackface. Uh, That was not received. That was not well received. But after his work in this movie, which is only one extended scene... Uh, but he did well enough that that led him to be cast in things like um, um, Becker and then another uh, show that he did with uh, Jason Schwartzman and things like that. And the good you know, place. That he got 
the good place, yeah, and that he got steady work after this, mostly in television, mm -hmm. but nonetheless steady work. Now, getting back to Hank's performance, which I think is better than the two movies that he won Oscars for, Philadelphia and uh, Forrest Gump, although I will concede that for its time, Philadelphia is pretty good, but there are you know, a lot more um, subtleties and, again, a lot more hardness um, in this performance than in those other two performances. And as far as the subtleties go, the scene where he tell, where Miller tells Ryan that he's not going to tell the story about his wife and the rose bushes that he saves out for himself. In Rodat's script, Miller did have a speech about the rose bushes, but Hanks told Spielberg, you know, my character wouldn't tell anyone else about that. And so Spielberg agreed to drop the speech. And I think the movie comes off all the better for it. Yeah, it does. You know, uh, we, we don't get very much about him at all, and it doesn't make any sense, even at that point in the story, for him to open up any further than he already has. So it's, it's definitely a, a reasonable thing for, for uh, Hanks' character to do, Captain Miller. Now, I want to talk about a couple of the criticisms of the movie. We'll start off with the one that I happen to agree with, which is that very last scene when you find out that the old man at the beginning of the movie is, in fact, Ryan, um, now elderly. Now, Spielberg has come under criticism um, in recent years and also at the time for not knowing how to end his movies or if he did end them, ending them in a overly sentimental way. And I have to say that in most cases that they're talking about, I happen to agree with the critics, and this is one of those cases. I feel that if Ryan had either said to the grave, I hope I'm the man, I hope I've lived up to what Miller had wanted for him, that I hope I'd earned this, or if he had asked his wife, I'm a good man, either of those by it's by themselves might have worked, but having the two of them together, I think, was too much. Personally, I think the movie would have been better served if you would just cut, you know, it's once you had seen Ryan's face and real as the older morphing into the older man, and then just see him at the gravestone, maybe a medium shot from his back or something like that with his family gathered around him once you realize that he's standing at Miller's grave, I think that would have been much more effective and less sentimental. What do you think, Claude? Well, that's interesting because while you were talking, I was trying to picture how would you do one or the other? And that's pretty much what I came up with is like if, if to have him... To have it be him asking his wife and, and, and to tell him, because my original memory, and this is like one of those, what, what do they call Mandela effects? You know, I was thinking it was 
am I am I a good man? Did I lead a good life kind of thing? And it turned out, no, he's asking her, please tell me this, right? Tell me I'm a good man. Tell me I did a good life, you know, that kind of thing. And And so if you were going to do it that way, how would you do it? And I was like, well, you know, probably along the lines of a view from his back, medium shot and looking at, at, at Miller's stone. And then the wife kind of walks into the shot and maybe you hear him kind of mumbling to himself. Like he's still talking to the grave, but we don't hear what he has to say. All right. This is how I pictured it. And then he does the thing with his wife. Tell me I had a good life. Um, you know that that's that's how I would have seen it, and and I I get where it might have been just a little bit of overkill, and at the same time, one of the things I liked about it though was that really his family doesn't get to hear what he has to say to Miller, and in fact, one of the things I I kind of got the feeling at the beginning of the film is they're going to Normandy, and it appears to be his first time back since D Day, or you know since since World War Two, and um. So you see his wife and you see his 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 son and daughter-in-law, or maybe it's the way other way around, I'm not sure. And you see the grandchildren, and I don't think they all necessarily know why they're there, which struck me as kind of interesting. And then we come to the end of the film, and still most of his family is far removed from him, despite the fact that they were right on top of him when we first went into the flashback. But still that that they were several feet away i still don't know that the grandchildren necessarily 100% appreciate his reason for being there and and where they are and and the the import of this particular location maybe the the next generation up has a little bit of an inkling as of, as far as what's going on even the wife doesn't really know and and what i got from that ending scene also was this is something that it's been 50 odd years since he has been to this area of the world. And I don't think he has said anything to his family about what happened. And so when he says, tell me I've been a good man, like it's still kind of an enigmatic thing to his wife. She actually looks confused for a moment and, and has to reassure him. Yes, this is what happened because she doesn't know like the efforts that people went through to retrieve her husband. Well, yes. And then also that plays into the fact that a lot of World War II veterans, from what I've read, were very reluctant oh, yeah. to talk about their experiences, especially those who liberated the concentration camps. Mm -hmm. So that, you know, that does play realistically that the children and grandchildren of him are a little unsure of what's going on here. And I believe you're right that this would have been the first time that Ryan uh, had visited, uh, her, had been in Normandy or been in France since the war. Uh, but anyway, that is one of the criticisms of the movie. Uh, another one is for John Williams's score. Now I happen to love John Williams as a composer and I can see the argument of those who think his score is a little overkill, but generally speaking, I think it's, um, 
I think it's well done and works within the context of the movie. What do you think, Claude? Yeah, I actually like the score. I didn't I didn't have a problem with it. I mean, it, you know, sometimes yeah, he can be a little bit mawkish and tugging at the heartstrings and whatever else. Um, but but I think you know it was it was carried off very well and it was used appropriately in, in certain places. It's not as though you know we got into battle scenes and all of a sudden the music kind of ramped up the way it did in say Jurassic Park when things got exciting, you know, and and which. I should mention was also, you know, part of, part of, you know, um, Williams, Williams, uh, oeuvre as they say, but so, you know, that, that the music was used relatively sparingly, um, I think kind of added to the emotional impact that it was intended to have. And, and so I, I really didn't have a complaint with that at all. Good. I'm glad to hear that. But and that leads me to the major criticism of the movie. Here's the big one. Okay. Hit me. Yes. Okay. So Spielberg is one of those directors who, ha- although he has many critics who are firmly in his corner, um, he has as well a number of critics, of vocal matter critics, who... Uh, think that he is, figuratively speaking, the devil. You know, mm. they blame him for start, along with George Lucas, for starting the blockbuster era that has dominated movies for the past several decades because of Jaws and Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Never mind the fact that, A, those two movies... Uh, are actually very good examples of blockbusters and many of the movies that have tried to imitate them have been bad and that is not Spielberg's fault and B, the fact that there are so many imitators are entirely the fault of studio heads who approve all of these movies because they are trying to get a little of that Spielberg gold for themselves. But that's a whole other argument. Oh, I'm definitely but, on the same page with you on this one. I mean, it's not st- who was Spielberg when Jaws came out? He was practically a nobody. Lucas had practically nothing going on until un- un- until Star Wars, and and so I mean, they didn't. They didn't invent invent the blockbuster summer film. You know, it just kind of happened. And the studio executives said, oh, this is something that we can capitalize on. And yeah, did start planning around that sort of thing, that the film's going to be released at thus and such a time. So it becomes the big honking movie of the summer. And we're going to throw the budget movie at, money at it and, and, and so forth. Did they? So, you know, they, they didn't invent the phenomenon. They might have, you know you know, kind of brought it into being because this could easily have been like, it could, it could have been any film that did that. Why wasn't it Coppola? Yes, 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 yes. I agree with that. But that's not the the argument that I was about to make. Okay. In the case of Saving Private Ryan, there are, uh, there were critics at the time and there have become even more critics today thanks to the fact that there have been a number of World War II movies made since then, both combat and non-combat movies. Um, And so Spielberg has uh, been blamed for supposedly glorifying the war 
that, you know, that he's saying that, okay, World War II may have been brutal, but it was a just and noble war, and that, therefore, that people have used that to justify not only all the war, the war movies that have been made since then, but also um, all the wars or police actions that the United States has gotten involved with since then in the real world. And I vehemently disagree with that aspect as well. Now, whether or not there is such a thing as a good war, quote-unquote, is something I'm very ambivalent about. And that, of course, again, is part of a much larger discussion. But whatever you feel about that issue, I think it's pretty clear that even though Spielberg is honoring the mission that Captain Miller and the other soldiers are on, he is not out to downplay war's atrocities here. In fact, he shows them in detail, and unlike other movies which have copied the aesthetic that Spielberg brings here. There, as I said before, there is nothing gratuitous or um, bombastic about it. He's just showing it in as realistic detail as possible. And, you know, to me, he is not glorifying war at all. Oh, no, not at all. I wouldn't I wouldn't say that at all. No, I, I absolutely agree with you on that. I mean, that's kind of like saying, like, you know, Lonesome Dove glorifies the cowboy area just because people died in it. I No, no, <laughs> that's nonsense. Nonsense. Okay, now, one, since this episode is already long, um, I'm only going to bring up a couple quick things before we wrap it up. One, this is the first of five movies to date that Spielberg has directed Hanks in. And although I like The Post, the most recent one that they did, and found find Catch Me If You Can, which I hope we talk about in a few, future episode a lot of fun this by far for me is the best of those five collaborations and secondly hanks and spielberg went on to executive produce two world war ii themed miniseries for hbo band of brothers which is about the war in europe and the pacific which obviously, is about the war in the Pacific. Now, I have some problems with the Pacific, but Band of Brothers is well worth checking out. Is there anything you want to add before uh, we wrap this up, Claude? Uh, no, I think we have pretty much wrung this one dry. So we are going to take a little bit of a timeout, and you are going to get part two of this episode right away in your feed. <laughs> 